0: Welcome to the Power of One podcast series, brought to you in association with the special edition Mazda RX-8PZ. For more information on the car, please visit www.mazda.co.uk.
1: I suppose we could start, if I could ask you to
0: talk us through uh, a typical day in the life of Chris Hoy well I suppose a typical day if I was based at home in Manchester would involve getting up around about 8.30 or so, nothing too early for me, um, breakfast and then pretty much straight down to the gym meeting up with the rest of the guys that are in the the squad and do our our strength training session which usually lasts around two hours and then because the the gym's in the velodrome, based in the velodrome here we just stay here grab some sandwiches or some lunch at the track and get ready for the track session, which would start around about 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock. And then it's a three-hour track session, through till 5. And quite often we get a massage straight after the track training session, which lasts about an hour. So then get home about half past 6, and put the tea on and then watch a bit of telly, check up my emails and then pretty much off to bed by ideally about 10, And that's about it. How knackered would you be when you crash? Pretty tired. I mean, the, the rest is as important as the actual the training part of, of what I do. And it's hard to explain that to people when, you know, you think, well, you're only training for maybe five hours a day, so what do you do for the rest of the day? But you, you really do have to make sure that the the time you spend off the bike is as um, restful as possible so that you're allowing your body to recover from the, the hard efforts you do. And it, it varies. You know, you do kind of... Um, periodize the training that you do so there's there's d- different phases that you'll be in so you could be in a a more strength-based phase or a more speed-based phase depending on what um, component of training you're you're looking to develop at that time so you know you're always trying to keep the body um changing the stimulus to the body so that it adapts to it and you improve and and it's it just basically means that you're pretty much knackered all the time yeah Muhammad Ali used to have this saying uh, which
1: I like I run on the road long before I dance under the lights uh, basically hated training but reckoned living the life of a champion made it all worthwhile is
0: is that a sentiment you would share with the great man? Um, I don't know actually I I really I quite enjoy the training I enjoy that part of my life for me it's all about the preparation and if I know that I've prepared to the best of my ability and I know that I can go to the start line confident that I'm going to get the best out of myself in a way, that takes the pressure off myself because you can't, you can't do better than your best. So if you're, if you're completely 100% prepared when you go to the start line, then I find I'm more relaxed and I'm able to, to get the best at myself. And if someone beats you when you've, you've done your best, then there's nothing you can do about that. I was watching there
1: beforehand, just people out on the track where we are, zooming around and around and around it it
0: does strike me something that could get very 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 boring is is that right um i don't know actually because it's you know comparison to maybe running or swimming where you're, you're doing a very repetitive thing at least in a track you're, you're re- reaching speeds in excess of 80 kilometers an hour so when you're going to the bends you know at that kind of speed the, the g-forces you're experiencing the just the, the adrenaline you get when you do that it, it does give you a buzz and it Although it looks a bit mundane when you're training day in, day out. Um, you know, it, It's an exciting sport. You're a
1: world champion, Olympic champion, Commonwealth champion. What do you think it is? What's the, the X factor
0: you have that other top cyclists don't? I don't necessarily think it's talent because there's guys from you know, from day one, basically, from when I was a kid at school right the way through till now, who have competed against, who I believe have got more talent and are more naturally gifted. But I think it's just a part of my personality I've always been able to push myself really 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 hard and get the, the best out of myself and sort of squeeze every last drop of you know effort out of everything I do and I think because I was maybe always getting second as a, as a youngster you know I'd always be the second best almost be there but not quite I always worked hard and always had that ambition just I want to you know improve a little bit more whereas guys who were winning you know just they'd step on a bike and they'd win a race without putting that much effort into it and they were naturally very gifted I think that when it gets to the stage that they, they do have to train hard and they do have to put effort in, you know, they didn't like it. And they, they, they were used to winning without much effort. And for me, it's always been a part of, a part of me that I've had to work very, very hard to, to get what I have.
1: When you were coming second as, as a youngster, was was there one person in particular who was your
0: nemesis or, or was it a dizzying array of people you were coming second to? Um, well, I used to race BMX when I was younger and there was one guy in particular, a guy called Matt Boyle, who was... I mean he was exceptionally good but he just won everything and I think I beat him once in the whole of my kind of seven year BMX career and you know he was just an amazing talent and you know I'm not saying he didn't work hard because I'm sure he did work hard as well but he was just you know head and shoulders above the rest and I think it's guys like Matt and guys in other sports as well I mean I did rowing I did rugby I did a bit of athletics too and just always having people that were better than you that you had to A you could watch them and see how they were they were doing it and B just there all the time so you had something to aspire to and something to aim at it really helped me you've had success on your
1: own and as part of a, a team obviously and um, which, which would you prefer if either or just what are the major differences between the two disciplines
0: They're, they are very different because when you win by yourself um, you know that it's it's down to your preparation and your effort on the night and that you know there's nothing no, nothing else involved in that um, obviously you've got your support from your team and, and the whole preparation phase, but on the night it's just you. Whereas if it's a team event like the, the team sprint, it's a three-man team event and when you win that you know you know what you've all gone through together to get there and and it's just, I don't know, I actually prefer the celebrations with a team event because you can, you can celebrate amongst yourselves and enjoy it more when it's just you. Obviously you're delighted but it's, you know, you you're going to bore everyone if you keep talking about it, but if you've got two teammates to sort of uh, have a laugh with and, you know, to go out and celebrate with, it it means a lot more. What kind of personal sacrifices have you had to make
1: to pursue this line of work, um, like in terms of social life,
0: family life, financial sacrifices? It's, you know, it's not been easy, but at the same time I've been very fortunate. The, The lottery funding came on board just at the right time for me. You know, I was just about finishing university, and the lottery funding came on board, which meant that it was just enough money to to live off or to to use as expenses to get back and forth up the road. Um, but in terms of sacrifices, I suppose moving from home, you know, I live or I used to live in Edinburgh. and um, I lived there all my life, and it's a wonderful place, and I, I do miss it. Um, so I had to relocate to Manchester to go somewhere they had a, a facility. Second of all, social life, yeah, you kind of they, you put that on a, a bit of a back burner because you just can't do. The training and recovery and fitting it all in. You know, you have, you've made time for seeing your friends, obviously, but if you're travelling for maybe four months of the year, then you're not seeing them for that time. And obviously, when you come home, you're still competing and, and training. So it's just frustrating when you might want to go out and have a few beers and you know, just have a late night, and you know you can't because it's you know, if you do that, there may not be anybody to tell you not to do it. But if you if you do that, then you know it's going to have repercussions the following day and the following week. Um, so what I tend to do is try to squeeze the, uh, the celebrations and stuff into the end of the season as much as I can so I have a month at the end of the year where I'll, I'll kind of catch up with everybody and you know cram it all in and yeah it's, it kind of makes it more special then because each night you kind of really boy, you hope you, hopefully you're going to remember it but um, it's more special and you know because you haven't seen anyone for a while it's a, usually a big celebration too Your teammate
1: Bradley Wiggins participated in the Tour de France last summer and shortly afterwards he wrote in the guardian that uh, he said i'm sick of feeling ashamed for being a professional cyclist and he said he couldn't wait back, wait to get back to track cycling and um, do you ever suffer from guilt by association from all the, the shenanigans that go on in in the peloton like if if you introduce yourself to someone who doesn't know you as a cyclist is it sort of raise
0: their eyes to heaven or do they assume you're you're taking drugs or whatever it's it's really sad because what Bradley says is correct. You know, if you speak to somebody and you tell them that you're a professional cyclist, they assume that means you're first of all you're a road cyclist. And if you say you're a professional cyclist, that's like saying, "Hi, I'm Chris. I take drugs." You know, and and it's it's just frustrating because any sport is going to have problems. Obviously, it's human nature to try and find a way to take shortcuts and cheat. But I don't know that when you've got an, a flagship event like the Tour de France, which is you know so publicly visible and it's not even just once a year when the the, the kind of drug scandals take place you see if you're into cycling and um, watching cycling and if you're a cycling fan you'll be aware that almost every week there's something in the press about either a case that's ongoing or somebody that's just tested positive and it, it's so depressing you know I was a, a a big fan of road cycling when I was a kid and I used to watch the Tour de France in the sort of late 80s and, and be amazed by it and and I'll be honest with you now, I, I don't really have that much of an interest in the Tour de France. You know, I'll, I'll keep a vague in, you know, eye on what's going on um, when it's actually taking place. I, I know you
1: rode the Alpe d'Huez stage for a children's leukaemia charity during
0: the summer. How was it? <laughs> it, was, it was pretty grim. I mean, I weighed 93 kilograms and most of the sort of top climbers on the Tour de France are weighing about 54, 55. So... First of all, there's the weight disadvantage, and second of all, just purely the fact that I only train over, you know, distances around 1,000 metres, so to do, you know, 200 kilometres finishing up the top of it was it was pretty grim, but I did enjoy it, it was just a totally different experience to anything I'd done before, Um, I went into it a little bit blind because I I didn't train for it, I knew that if i tried to do too much in the way of um, endurance training, then it would affect my speed on the track, so I just thought it'd be a one-off experience you know raise some money for charity and have a bit of fun and, and give it a go so it was uh, it was really hard i mean i'll not i'll not pretend it wasn't hard going up that last climb after you know seven and a half hours of riding and it was 35 degrees in heat and literally there were people passing out left right and center i mean there were any shaded area on the last climb people were just getting off and stopping and there were streams at the side of the road they were going and like sticking their head in the streams trying to try and cool down and I knew that if I stopped, I wouldn't get back on the bike again, so I just kept plodding away um, and eventually got there. But just that feeling of having spent... I was on the bike for almost eight and a half hours, and, you know, just the aching in your back and saddle sore and just everything. It was it was a real test of endurance, but, you know, one that I, I will, will remember for the rest of my life. Uh, this could well be a very stupid question, but
1: is it conceivable, if you wanted to, could, could you sort of get a tow around... France from the peloton and possibly win a couple of early sprints in the tour.
0: Um, no, it's you get guys like Chris Boardman or Bradley who are endurance track riders. who do the pursuit, and that's the shortest they could possibly do. That's like a kind of four and a half minute effort. Um, so that'd be the equivalent of I don't know Paula Radcliffe running the ten thousand meters or three thousand meters or whatever on the track, but also doing the marathon. So you get these guys that do the short, the long track events, but also do the, the Tour de France. But for me to run. So to ride the Tour de France, you know, it, it's impossible really. I'm, I'm a pure sprint athlete. You know, it'd be like, a, I don't know, a Safa Powell running running the marathon. You wouldn't see that happening, um, no matter how much endurance training. You'd get around in the same way I could get round, but, you know, not in the same ballpark as these guys. Right. Um, what are your sort of short and long-term
1: goals? Uh, what, what are you in training for at the moment? Is it all focused on Beijing or... Um, is there something else coming up in the meantime
0: well I've got kind of intermediate goals between now and Beijing Um, the World Cup series is just starting so I'm off to to Sydney on Monday for for the first round of the World Cup then there'll be a World Cup in Moscow LA and then Manchester in the next four months and then the World Championships are in Majorca in March so that's the next big target the World Championships and then I've decided to do to make an attempt on the world record for the the 1000 meters um so that will probably take place in may in bolivia so it's the it's the highest track in the world it's the it's in la paz it's about 4000 meters so it's you know basically on the moon virtually so i mean that the track itself is a bit dilapidated a bit run down but just because it's so high the the, the air is so thin that it's a, a massive advantage so uh, would it be easier to breathe there or more difficult be a lot harder to breathe but because you're only riding for just under a minute um basically you're, you're working without oxygen anyway and um, you're working anaerobically so it, for events up to this of 1000 meters it's a massive advantage anything beyond that that involves you know using oxygen then you do suffer so you know as long as you've got a doctor at the side with oxygen on hand then you basically just go absolutely flat out and kind of Work without—it's like holding your breath and, and sprinting flat out. You know, you've got no auction coming in, but you're still operating maximally. And then you kind of pay the debt when you once you finish. That's when it starts to hurt, or that's when it, it you really suffer. But that'll be a, a target. That'll probably be the last time I ride the one thousand meters, with it not being a, a Olympic event anymore. I want to put everything into that, ideally to break the world record and to have that world record. I, I do have the Olympic and the, the sea level world record, but to have the the absolute record set at altitude would be, you know. A great, great thing for me. You're thirty, is that right? Thirty now. Uh, how long more have you left, and what will you do when you're finished? Um, well, I, I certainly plan to go into Beijing, and if if things go well in Beijing, then I, you know, I really would like to continue on to London because to have a a British Olympics, you know, and not be part of that would be a shame. Um, you know, that's a, a big motivating factor to have the, the home crowd and just to to experience what that would be like. So, being thirty six and still being at the very top isn't unheard of. There's guys, well. In my own team, for example, Jason Queeley, he's he's going to be 38 in Beijing, and there's still showed no signs of uh, you know slowing down. Craig McLean, Jamie Staff, they're all mid 30s, um, and other countries too. They've got guys that are competing well into their, their mid 30s, even to late 30s, and still winning medals. So it's a personal thing, you know. It, cycling itself is quite a low impact uh, activity, so it's not like running where your joints are taking a, a hammering every time you go training. So if you're injury-free and you're still motivated and you're still you know, successful, then you can go on almost as long as you want.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you.